On April 11, 2019, a group of officers in the Metropolitan Police Service left New Scotland Yard in London, England. They went up A3211 past the RAF Memorial before making a left onto Northumberland Avenue. They proceeded to turn onto the mall at the roundabout near Trafalgar Square. They stayed on the mall for almost a mile, passing St. James's Park, the National Police Memorial, the Prince Philip House, the King George VI Memorial, the Princess Diana Memorial, the Clarence House, the Lancaster House, and finally, the Victoria Memorial. They made a right onto Constitution Hill, passing between Green Park and Buckingham Palace Garden. After passing Canada Gate and Commonwealth Memorial Gate, they turned left at the roundabout onto Duke of Wellington Place before turning left onto Knightsbridge at Hyde Park Corner. They passed to the left of Hyde Park before turning left onto Sloan Street. They passed the variety of high-end stores on Sloan Street, including Louis Vuitton, Hogan Boutique, Versace, Bulgari, and Dior. Finally, they turned right onto Hans Crest before arriving at their destination, the Embassy of Ecuador. Inside the embassy was Australian hacker and activist Julian Assange. Assange was wanted by the governments of several nations, including the United Kingdom, the United States, and Sweden, for his activities related to the website WikiLeaks. WikiLeaks had been developed by Assange for the purpose of exposing government secrets, and it was used in many high-profile government scandals, including the Afghanistan war logs and the NSA's cell phone data collection. Assange had entered the embassy in 2012, seven years prior, and was soon granted asylum by the Ecuadorian government. However, nine days before this police operation, Assange posted photos on WikiLeaks linking Ecuadorian President Lenin Moreno to a corruption scandal. In response, the embassy staff invited the Metropolitan Police in, and Assange was arrested. He is currently serving a one-year prison sentence at HM Prison Belmarsh, and if he is ever extradited to the U.S., he'll likely be imprisoned at ADX Florence with Ted Kaczynski, Ramsey Youssef, and others. Just listen to my first episode. But how Assange stayed in the embassy for seven years is a fascinating chapter of geopolitics. Assange's arrest wasn't the only incident involving embassy jurisdiction in the history of the UK. Thirty years earlier, a situation at an embassy in London turned deadly. I'm going to tell you all about it right now on Historia Obscura. Welcome to Historia Obscura. This is the 12th episode of this podcast, and I'm glad you've stuck around for this episode. Special thank you to Patreon subscriber SoDakZak. If you want to receive a shout-out in every episode, among other benefits, help support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash historiaobscura and becoming a patron. 
One more thing, make sure to stick around for a little to hear a message about the sponsor of this episode of Historia Obscura, Anchor. If you want to make your own podcast, you'll want to know everything about how to use Anchor. It is a common myth that embassy buildings are the sovereign territory of the nation represented by the embassy. The Swiss embassy in Washington, D.C. is still part of the U.S. The Russian embassy in Ottawa is still part of Canada. The South African embassy in Paris is still part of France. And the Polish embassy in Pyongyang is still part of North Korea. It is also a myth that the laws of the host country don't apply in the embassy. However, even though these laws still apply, there's nothing stopping them from breaking these laws, so long as the law doesn't also exist in the nation represented by the embassy. For example, there is nothing stopping Kathleen McFarland, the de facto U.S. ambassador to Singapore, from chewing gum in the American embassy in Singapore, even though chewing gum is banned in the nation. This is because of two reasons. First, diplomats and their families are not allowed to be arrested and prosecuted for crimes they commit by the host country's police unless their home country voluntarily waives this immunity. This is how Anne Sekoulis, the wife of an NSA employee working at the RAF base in Croton, England, avoided prosecution after she was involved in a car accident in 2019. Sekoulis was driving on the wrong side of the road when she hit 19-year-old British motorcyclist Harry Dunn, killing him. The U.S. government refused to waive her diplomatic immunity, and she returned to America in October of that year, despite the pleas of Dunn's family and British Foreign Secretary Dominic Rayev. The second factor confirming diplomatic immunity is that police officers of the host nation aren't allowed to enter the embassy without the permission of the represented nation. This is how Julian Assange stayed in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for seven years until the Ecuadorian government allowed British police to enter the embassy and arrest him. Police officers aren't the only ones not allowed in embassies without permission. Soldiers, government officials, and even firefighters and EMTs are all not allowed inside of an embassy without the represented nation's permission. But if a diplomat really angers a host country's government, there is still one thing the host government can do. They can declare the diplomat persona non grata and kick them out. From 1969 to 2011, the North African nation of Libya was ruled by Libyan army colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi, who owned a summer home in Englewood, New Jersey, promoted a form of Islamic socialism known as Jamahidiyya, or State of the Masses. Gaddafi also viewed dissidents and exiles from Libya as traitors. Many of Gaddafi's opponents fled to the United Kingdom, and Gaddafi sought to have them killed. He ordered bombs to be planted in newspapers and given to these dissidents. 
this method of assassination was somewhat successful, and several of Gaddafi's opponents living in London and Manchester were killed by these newspaper bombs. In response, the British government declared Libyan ambassador Musa Kusa persona non grata, and he was expelled from the UK. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher threatened further action against Libyan diplomatic missions in the UK, so Gaddafi temporarily halted these bombings in 1980. But in 1983, the new Libyan embassy staff, who were on fairly good terms with the British government, were replaced by Gaddafi, who condemned what he believed were the bourgeois habits of the staff. Gaddafi appointed a committee of Libyan students loyal to himself to man the embassy in London. The assassination of Libyan dissidents in the UK continued, straining relations between Libya and the UK. On April 16, 1984, two students in Libya who opposed Gaddafi were publicly executed by hanging at the University of Tripoli. Because of this, Libyan dissidents decided that they had enough with Gaddafi. A demonstration began around the Libyan embassy in London the next day, but nobody could have predicted what would happen there that day. At 10.18 a.m., on April 17, 1984, an individual inside of the embassy building opened fire into the crowd with a Sterling submachine gun. Ten protesters were wounded, as was 25-year-old woman police constable Yvonne Fletcher. As Fletcher lay dying in the street, her best friend, police constable John Murray, promised that he'd find her killers and bring them to justice. Two hours later, Fletcher died from her injuries at a nearby hospital. Every year, on April 17th, Murray has hosted a memorial service in London for Fletcher, except in 2020, when he cancelled the service for the first time due to the COVID-19 pandemic. On the night of the shooting, an autopsy of Fletcher's body confirmed that the fatal shots came from inside the embassy, so the British government began negotiating with Gaddafi to try and get him to let police into the embassy. See, although diplomats are not allowed to be arrested, the individuals inside of the embassy weren't technically diplomats as they hadn't been approved by the British Foreign Service. This meant that if the Libyan government gave the police permission to enter the embassy, the shooter could be arrested. However, Gaddafi refused to waive the embassy's diplomatic immunity. On April 27th, the same day as Fletcher's funeral, the UK severed diplomatic ties with Libya and gave the embassy staff another week to leave the country. Nobody was ever charged with Yvonne Fletcher's murder, but it is still an open case and arrests can still be made. The murder of Yvonne Fletcher weighed heavily on British attitudes towards Libya. Knowing this, U.S. President Ronald Reagan convinced British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to allow the U.S. to bomb Libya from various RAF bases in 1986. 
These airstrikes served as retaliation for a bombing at a nightclub in West Berlin, which killed U.S. Army Sergeants Kenneth Ford and James Goines. It is widely theorized that the airstrikes were an assassination attempt on Gaddafi's life. Two U.S. Air Force captains, Fernando Ribas Domenici and Paul Lawrence, were killed when their F-111 was shot down during the airstrikes. To get back into America's good books, Gaddafi soon abandoned socialism and encouraged private enterprise. While this did temporarily heal the divide between Libya and the West, Gaddafi's fate had been sealed as soon as he orchestrated the murder of Yvonne Fletcher. In 2011, after an eight-month civil war in the midst of the Arab Spring, Muammar Gaddafi was captured and killed by opposition forces in the Battle of Sirte. The militia groups responsible for killing Gaddafi were funded by the U.S. and U.K., but this would later backfire catastrophically. On September 11, 2012, a group of Ansar al-Shadia militants breached the U.S. consulate in Benghazi, Libya, and set the compound on fire, killing Ambassador J. Christopher Stevens as well as three other American diplomats. Ultimately, it can definitely be said that the U.S. and U.K. don't have a hot streak with embassies and Libya. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Historia Obscura. I personally found this topic to be one of the most fascinating I've ever covered, and I wouldn't be surprised if you felt the same way. If you want to suggest an episode of Historia Obscura, send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash Historia Obscura slash message. Feel free to leave your name and location, and if I like your idea, I'll make an episode of it and give you credit. Additionally, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Historia Obscura and become a patron. And of course, I can't go without once again thanking this episode's sponsor, Anchor. They are by far the easiest way to make a podcast, so if you want to make your own, go to anchor.fm. With that said, this is Jack from Historia Obscura, signing off, but not for long. <laughs>